We've been looking for the past several weeks uh, at the concluding verses of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And today we take up verse 20, so let's stand as I read this entire passage. I think this will be the fourth time that I've read this entire passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. You listen as I read God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. O God, let us now with diligence attend to your heavenly wisdom, that you would be glorified and we would be edified. Father, write your word upon our hearts so that we might be more conformed to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, we're, we're finishing up this important section of Romans in which Paul, he compares what we are in Adam and what we are in Christ. And we come to these Two little verses at the very end of this section, verses 20 and 21. I think we might be inclined to sort of hurry over these two verses. Because when you first look at them, they, they appear to be tacked on simply as an afterthought. Now, we've, we've followed Paul's argument in this section. We've seen the, the contrast between the sin of Adam and its consequences on the one hand, and the obedience of Christ and its consequences on the other. All of that, Paul, has at last been wrapped up. The sin of Adam led to condemnation and death, and the righteousness of Christ led to justification and eternal life. And that contrast was so important 
that Paul stated it twice. Once in verse 18, and then again in verse 19. And we looked at those two verses last Sunday. Well, why then do we now have a reintroduction of the law, trespass, sin, grace, death, righteousness, and eternal life in these concluding two verses? Now, isn't all that redundant? Wouldn't it be better if we just sort of hurried along to chapters 6 and 7? Well, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be better. Because these words here at the end not only summarize what Paul has already said, but they really present in capsule form the themes that he's going to raise in the chapters to follow. So we need to spend some time looking at these two verses over the next couple of weeks as we, as we close out this section. Verse 20 begins by mentioning the law. So I want to back up for just a moment to see what Paul has already said in Romans about the law of God. And I would suggest to you that he has said two important things. First, he has pointed out that the law was not given as a way by which we can be justified. If you have your Bibles, turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Paul says there, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul says that the law tells you what you should do, but it doesn't enable you to do it. It cannot and it does not justify anybody. Second, Paul tells us that the law wasn't even necessary to condemn us. When we studied verse 14 a couple of weeks ago, We saw that man was a sinner long before the law came in. The law didn't make him a sinner. He was already a sinner because of the sin of his first father, Adam. You know, someone once said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In other words, we're not born with a tabla rosa, a clean slate. We come into this world already wired with a sin nature inherited from Adam. And Paul tells us here that that's why we die. That's why we're condemned. We're not condemned by the law. Okay, Paul, you're confusing me. You've told me that the law wasn't given as a means of justification. And I can buy into that. I can accept that. You've told me that the law wasn't even necessary to condemn me since I've already been condemned for the sin of Adam. And I can accept that, even though it's a little harder for me to understand that. But look, if these two things are true, then what's the purpose of the law? If we can't be saved by the law, and if it's not even necessary to condemn us, what does it do? Does it, in fact, do anything? You know, as I look at it, Paul, it doesn't seem to have any real purpose at all. You know, what's the deal here? 
Well, Paul answers, Paul's answer to all that is in the first part of verse 20. Our text for today, which says, Now the law came in, he says, to increase the trespass. See, this is the effect of the law being added. This is the effect of the law coming in. It doesn't justify. It doesn't provide a remedy for sin. In fact, Paul says its actual effect on, on man was that it allowed sin to increase. That seems odd. How are we to understand that? Well, let's look. Well, I think the first way in which the law increased sin was by increasing our knowledge of sin. That's what Romans 3.20 says, which I just read. One key purpose of the law is to bring out the true nature and the magnitude of sin so that it can be seen for what it really is. Before the law came in, man didn't in every instance clearly understand what sin was. But when the law was added, it pointed out to man that this evil, which he had probably thought very little of, it was actually an abomination in God's eyes. Let me put it this way. Man's nature and character was sort of like a dark room, which didn't have any light in it. And he couldn't really see how filthy his house was. But when a lamp was brought in, or when a window was opened, he finds out to his dismay how bad conditions really are in his house. You know, maybe, maybe he had a premonition. Maybe he had an inkling that everything wasn't as it should be, that something wasn't quite right. But he had no clue how bad off he really was. I think another way of saying this is that the law turns sin into transgression. Now, all wrong acts are sinful, even without the law. But you see, they're only seen to be sin when they're exposed as transgressions of God's law. Now, for example, it has always been crazy to drive your car 100 miles an hour on a winding road. But before speed laws were enacted, there was no way to punish you. But when the law was added, it turned your foolishness into transgression, into a trespass of the law. Now let me just pause here for a moment and make an application in regard to this point. I may be wrong, but I, I contend that the church isn't all that strong today in evangelizing those outside its walls. And I believe that one of the reasons for this is that the law of God is not a key part of many of her evangelism programs. You know, most unbelievers today have no clue that they're sinners. They don't know that, they're, that they've broken God's law. The idea of sin is strange to them. Why? Because God's law is foreign to their minds. What do many Christians usually do when they witness to unbelievers in today's postmodern world? As quickly as we can, 
we usually run directly to the cross of Christ without even mentioning, except maybe in passing, God's law. But, dear ones, the cross of Christ is meaningless apart from the law. On the cross, Jesus was satisfying the just demands of the law against sinners. If sinners are unaware of the law's perfect requirements for themselves, they'll see no personal significance in Christ's broken body and shed blood. Without knowledge of God's requirements that we keep his law perfectly, and we can never do that, the cross might draw sympathy from sinners. But I can assure you, it will never draw saving faith. Men and women are not turning to Christ today because they have no sense of sinning against the Lord. They aren't convicted of sin because they don't know what sin is. They have no concept of sin because the church often doesn't preach or teach the law of God. We need to preach grace every single day. But dear ones, we also need to preach law. You know, the greatest evangelist of all times, Jesus Christ, preached the law. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And what was Jesus' first response to this young man? His first response was to preach the law to him, the Ten Commandments, until that man saw clearly what he had to do to be a follower of Christ. I think we need to tell people that God gave the law so that they can comprehend the magnitude and the multitude of their offenses and thereby see that they stand guilty before him and they need a Savior. You know, the law doesn't make us sinful, but it does display our sinfulness. It brings knowledge of sin to us. And in the presence of this perfect standard, we see how far we fall short of it. The law of God is a mirror in which a man sees how dirty his face is. The mirror doesn't wash you. You can't wash in a mirror. But it prompts you to look for soap and water to get cleaned up. The law is designed to reveal our many trespasses so that we may be driven out of our self-righteousness to the Lord Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So one of the purposes of God's law is to bring us a knowledge of the true nature and magnitude of our sin and drive us to the Lord Jesus for salvation. I think another purpose of the law is to convict people of sin. Now, does the law... Also do the opposite? Sure it does. It sometimes does that. It can harden the heart of those who aren't called by God. The law can do that. But when the Spirit of God is moving a person, the preaching of the law brings conviction. And it teaches those who have been convicted of sin that this is something to stay away from. And why does that happen? Well, I think it happens because the law reveals sin to be an offense against God himself. You see, as long as we think of sin only as, as a violation of some abstract moral code, it's not going to cause us to, lo to lose much sleep. But when we discover sin 
to be against the God who made us and who has provided us with all good things. When we see that it's rebellion against our Creator, an offense and an insult to Him, then we experience real conviction. The law does that. You know, in Romans 7, where Paul discusses the the role of the law at great length, he not only says that the law gave knowledge of sin, he adds that it, it actually awoke sin and allowed sin to produce even more sinful desires. He says in verse 8, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. You know, I think, I think we can understand that idea. It's not hard. We all know how the knowledge of the law produces a desire in us to break it. I hate to say this, but just watch a two-year-old. When he tries to get into something, his parents issue the commandment, no, no. What happens? I think typically that commandment acts like a magnet, which actually drives him to touch the forbidden object. And if there was no punishment or no observing parent, I think he would touch it every single time. Isn't it true? Now, how many of us drive five miles an hour over the posted speed limit just because the law says we can't do it and there's no state trooper in sight? You know, I I can't vouch for this, but I'm told that during Prohibition that the sale of alcoholic beverages actually went up during that period. Now, you may not agree with me, but I have reservations about sex education in schools specifically because of this same principle. You know, as a result of sin, the minds of our children are not pure. And I suspect that teaching of this sort outside of a godly context is likely to create in them a greater desire to know about these things and to do them. You know, knowledge of sin has never prevented anybody from sinning. Instead, the more you know about it, the more you're subject to the temptation to do it. You know, what, what a terrible, terrible, terrible thing sin is. It's the law alone that shows us just how bad and pervasive it really is. It convicts us of our sin, and it drives us to Christ. Well, you're probably asking at this point, okay, Stu, enough of law and sin. I get the message. I've got it. You know, you've titled this sermon, Law, Sin, and Grace, so where's the grace part? Well, we find grace in the second half of verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, that little phrase, describing grace, at least to me, it stands out like a tenfold beacon on a dark and dangerous night. The dark background is sin, but then this beacon flashes. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now what a, what a great word grace is. It carries us directly into the heart of God. Dear ones, by no other way can a creature come to the Creator, and by no other means 
can a sinner stand before a holy God? You know, there's, we've already talked a lot about God's superabundant grace the last three or four weeks. But let me make just one more brief point, and it's this. Grace is never withheld because of sin. Grace is never withheld because of sin. Now, we need to clearly understand what this means. Because in, in normal life, you and I never operate that way. In fact, we do just the opposite. If we are offended by somebody, what do we do? We tend to withdraw from that person. We, I certainly don't show them any favor. We find it hard even to be civil to them. But praise God, he isn't like that. On the contrary, Paul says here, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Can that be true? Is that really true? You know, Paul says it here, but can we believe it? Well, let's take a look in Scripture. Look at the case of Adam. You know, Adam hadn't gone very far from the scene of his crime before the grace of God sought him out and called him by name. You know, God didn't withhold his grace because of Adam's sin. Instead, what did he do? He made, he made great promises of grace to him. He announced that the Messiah would come, the Deliverer, the Seed of the Woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would destroy the Destroyer and bring man back into fellowship with himself. You know, and although Adam tried to cover himself, cover his shame with fig leaves, God intervened in grace and clothed him with a skin garment. You know, think of that. The first blood ever shed upon this planet was shed by God Almighty to provide covering for the man and the woman who believed his word about the redemption that would be supplied. Grace wasn't withheld because of Adam's sin. It was given in spite of his sin. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It was the same in the days of Moses. When the people had come to Mount Sinai and the law was being given. On the mountain, God told Moses, I am the Lord your God. He brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But what was happening while God was saying that? Well, God's people were down at the base of the mountain making another god. With Aaron's help, they made a golden calf. They were worshiping it. Was that a barrier to God's grace? I don't think so. Because on the same mountain from which God looked down on that horrible, horrible sin, you remember what he did? He gave the specifications for the tabernacle, for the altar, for the priesthood, and the way people were to approach him to honor him. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, what about the New Testament? Does it, does this, we see the same principle there. You know, look at Peter. He denied Christ three times with curses. But Jesus didn't condemn him. What did he do? Instead, he recommissioned him to service. It's the same with Paul. You know, Paul wrote that he was the chief of sinners. He didn't even deserve to be a, an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church. But he went on to say that he was what he was by the grace of God. 
This was the man God used to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, where it, where it comes down to us today. This is the man God used to give us this text we're studying this morning, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And dear ones, the sin of humanity reached its peak when the Son of God was crucified. But out of that very death flowed the grace of God which brings salvation. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, now I come to you. You may consider yourself to have forfeited all hope of salvation because of something you've done. You know, I have no idea what that might be. Maybe some gross sexual sin. It may be a perversion. Maybe, maybe you've stolen from your boss. Maybe, maybe you've destroyed somebody's reputation. Maybe you've cursed God because of something in your life. Whatever the sin, you know, you're sure that there's no hope for you, that you're destined to be lost eternally. If that describes you, then this text is for you. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No dam erected by sin can hold, up, hold back the abundant flow of God's grace. Grace is never withheld because of sin. Not Adam's sin, not the sin of the Israelites, not Peter's sin, not Paul's sin, and not your sin. And further, never think that you can ever fall from grace. I know that phrase is in the Bible. It's in Galatians 5.4. It says there, you have fallen away from grace. But let me tell you what that means. It does not mean that you have lost your salvation. It means that you have fallen into law as a way of living. You know Galatians. The Galatians had been taught the true gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. But they had become confused by these Jewish legalists. They'd been coming around teaching that it was necessary for them to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Particularly, they've been insisting that Gentile believers must be circumcised. And Paul exhorts them to stand firm in the freedom of Christ that, that Christ has purchased for them and not become entangled again in legal bondage. And I think what Paul is saying to the Christians in Galatia and to us, is that when we fall away from grace, we don't lose our salvation, but we do fall into law. We become miserable legalists again, instead of joyful, thriving Christians. Now, having said that, I don't mean to suggest even for a second that God condones sin. God has never ignored the implications of human rebellion. Because when you and I see Jesus dying, we realize that God hated sin with an infinite hatred. And he loves sinners as much as sinners could be loved. God hates sin in us. He will continually work to remove it and to give you the victory over it. And sometimes, usually, typically, when he does that, it's painful. But the point I'm making here is that God will never diminish his grace toward you because of your sin. In fact, and I hesitate to say this because I don't want you to misunderstand me, it's in your sin 
that you will find God's grace to be the most abundant. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. You see, the reason Paul was such a champion of grace was that he had been forgiven a great deal. Paul killed Christians. David committed adultery and murder. Peter denied Christ three times. What have you done lately? You may come to God through Jesus Christ because God has dealt with sin finally and completely. You know, there's a Greek word for this. Jesus said it on the cross. The word is tetelestai. It is finished. The debt has been paid in full. Regardless of what you've done or will do, Jesus has paid your sin debt in full. Dear ones, you can repent and find full full forgiveness in him. And of course the question is, have you done that? If not, will you do it now? Before you leave this morning. I'd love to talk to you about that. Well, if you've received this abundant grace of God, which has increased much more over your sin, then I want to encourage you this morning not to keep it to yourself. God's grace is meant to be shared. You know, I'm always amazed by how much people will do for sin, what they'll give, what they'll spend, what they'll endure to gratify gratify their sinful passions. I think we often nurture our sins more than we do our children. And what's even more amazing to me is that rank pagans are often more committed to their gods than many Christians are to their god. They're more intense in their adoration of Satan than many of us are in our obedience to God. And again, making this personal to you and also to me, when's the last time we told somebody about God's grace in Christ? You know, God, I'm convinced, he always gives us divine encounters. He puts people in our lives. He puts people in our paths. But do we take advantage of these encounters? We sit in the barber chair. We sit at the bus station. We go to the mall, and we listen to lost people all around us dishonor the name of our Lord, and we often remain silent. We don't vote for godly candidates. We say nothing about the scourge of abortion. We remain silent in the face of terrible heresy in God's church. You know, I hate to admit it, But you and I are often cowards when it comes to giving praise to God in the public square, to witnessing of his amazing, amazing grace in our lives. You know, I think it should be a matter of some concern to us that at the very moment when our culture is plunging into unprecedented darkness and sin, at the very moment when she should stand strong, that the evangelical church is losing her nerve. At the very moment when boldness and courage are called for, what we see all too often is timidity. Instead of confronting our dying culture in a winsome and persuasive way, we are too often capitulating to it. 
Dear ones, the truth is that today the fields have never been so ready for harvesting. Our culture has never been riper to hear about a God large enough to provide meaning for life. Meaning rooted in his own transcendent character and grace and forgiveness. It's a meaning which is objective because of the cross of Christ. And you see, without knowing exactly why, many people today ate to hear such things. They want to hear those things. And we need to tell them this good news of God's grace. This is no time to lose our nerve. You know, later on in Romans, Paul says in chapter 10, verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when he uses that word preach, I'm persuaded he's also thinking of teaching and witnessing. And so as I close this morning, I want to encourage you to never miss an opportunity to be a winsome, faithful witness to our Lord Jesus. You cannot share God's grace with everybody. But you can, by his grace, share it with somebody. And when you do, God himself will rise up and he will call you blessed. He will rise up and call you beautiful. May God make it so in every heart this morning. Amen and amen.